the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 to 32. Zigo 那人說,你的名字必須再叫雅各,要叫以色列,因為你與神教力都得了聖。雅各問他說,請把你的名告訴我。我的性命仍得保存。雅各經過曲路,立色力的時候,他有剛剛出來,就抬他身上,他因為大腿的傷,破腳行走。因此以色列人直到現在都不喝大腿窩上的根,因為那人在雅各的大腿窩上的根打了
Or have I merely inherited and practiced a faith that has never actually sunk deep into our hearts, into my heart? And so I want to consider this passage, this great story, a very famous one of Jacob wrestling with a man that he later discovers is actually God himself. And here is Jacob, as we, if you've been with us, you know, the great deceiver, the great manipulator, the great exploiter, uh, coming to grips with the living God himself. And so I want to look at this story and consider what are the marks of a genuine encounter with God? Have you met God in this way? Or maybe you're here and you're not quite sure what to believe about God or the Christian faith. Uh, these are the marks that will let you know that you've met God yourself. And so three things that I want us to consider. When you meet God first, you must meet him yourself. Secondly, you must meet him in weakness. And then thirdly, you must meet him in his wounds. So let's think about each one of those. First, you must meet him yourself. And so when we look at this story, here is Jacob. He's right at the edge of the river Jabbok. And when we meet him, what we discover is that he has just sent his wife, his children, his belongings, his servants, his livestock. He sent them all across to the other side of the river. And here we see Jacob standing completely alone. Uh, everything that he's valued, everything that he's manipulated for, everything that he's exploited others for, everything that was surrounding him, all of that he sent across the river Jabbok. And here in his solitude is the place where Jacob meets God. Many commentators will say that this is one of the first times that you see Jacob earnestly seeking God. But Jacob realizes that he must meet God himself. Now, here's what this means. It means that you can be raised in the church. Uh, you could believe all the doctrines. You could know all the catechisms of the church. You could know all the stories of the Bible. Uh, you can keep yourself busy with religious activities. You can be active in a local congregation. You could be serving on mission trips at VBSs. Uh, you could be active in so many different ways. And at the end of the day, what's happened with you is you've just gotten caught up in the busyness and the fervor of other people's faith, and you've never actually met God yourself. Or you can be here, again, exploring the claims of Christianity, or you're just wondering, what is there more out there? Is there more to life than this? And you could be considering all the arguments. You could be researching all these different religious traditions. You could be considering the claims of Christianity. You could be engaging in all the intellectual rigor of it, but really you've just been caught up in an interesting philosophical question but you're not actually open to the possibility that you might meet God yourself. Or you could be somebody who has been very active in your local community, who's sought to live your life near to the poor, who sought to live your life as an advocate for those who are on the margins, who are forgotten, uh, to be a voice for justice in a world that is so often marked by injustice, that you could be a very activistic person but really you've just been caught up in the profound need that you've seen around you, but you've never actually met God yourself. And in fact, one of the insights of the Christian faith is this. You can actually use every single one of those things, church activity, intellectual rigor, 
local activism. You can use every single one of those things as your favorite strategy to avoid having to do business with God. Henry Nouwen, who's a Catholic priest, he wrote in a book how he had met a parish priest that he had long admired and long admired for his activism, for all the things that he does in Christian ministry. And in talking with the priest, the priest actually said this to Henry Nouwen. He says, I guess I'm busy in order to avoid a painful self-concentration. His incredible activities were in large part motivated by fear of what he would discover within when he came to a standstill. That sometimes the best way of avoiding God is to keep yourself busy with the work of God so that you might not ever actually have to deal with him face to face. Because as crucial as church community is, as crucial as the intellectual life is, as crucial as justice is, at some point you must find yourself alone on the near side of the river, standing alone with God. Has that happened to you? Do you know what it's like to send across the river everything that you use to keep you safe? everything that you surround yourself with, you know what it's like to send all that across the river and find yourself alone with God. One of my favorite stories of this is, of, is a famous pastor by the name of John Wesley. And the reason why I love this story is that John Wesley grew up in Christian faith, became the father of modern-day Methodism, uh, was called to ministry, was ordained as a minister, became a missionary. He's a, he was in the U.K. This is back, you know, in the 1700s. He lived in the U.K. and was a, was a missionary to the colony of Georgia for a number of years. And after all of this Christian service, he was a pastor, a minister, a missionary. After all of this, he comes back to London after what he felt like was a failure, and he realized there in London that he had never actually met the God of grace. And so he famously writes on May 24th, 1738, where he was at a group of Bible, street, uh, Bible study in Aldersgate Street, and he says this. He says, while the preacher was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed, and I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, yes, even my sins, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Decades of Christian service, a missionary to what at that time felt like the far reaches of the known world. By every other measure, you would think he was a person who, of course, has met with God. And it wasn't until after all of that where he came back dealing what he, with what he felt like was deep failure that he finally encounters God in a deep, direct, and personal way. This is what the Bible tells us about what a genuine encounter with God looks like. But even more practically than that, can I tell you why this is important? Uh, the great theologian Marvin Gaye uh, famously said, there are three things that are sure. You know this? One of my favorite songs, Marvin Gaye songs, Trouble Man. There are three things that are sure, taxes, death, and trouble. 
And the reason why, apart from the fact that the Bible teaches this is what a genuine encounter with God looks like, but the reason why practically this makes sense is that you can live on a borrowed faith as long as your life is going great, as long as you're comfortable and protected and safe. But the moment that taxes, death, or trouble hit, your borrowed faith will evaporate like a mist. Your inherited faith will crumble in the face of troubles. Because you and I know this. Look, when we're facing troubles, when you're suffering, when you're feeling like your whole life is falling apart around you, it's crucial to have a community of support around you, isn't there? But in the end, the demons are fa- demons that you must face yourself. And so when it comes down, it comes time to be wheeled into the operating room. No one can do that for you. When it becomes time to have to deal with the shattering grief that you've avoided for so long, no one can face that for you. When it comes to coming grips with the fact that you've gotten a diagnosis that for the first time makes you feel the reality of your mortality, no one can face that for you. That when you finally come to, the, come to grips with all of the ways that the disappointments in life has wounded your heart, no one can do that. No one can overcome your trauma for you. No one can wrestle and face down your depression for you. You must face it yourself. You can get through life on your parents' faith until taxes, death, and trouble hit. And you realize your parents' faith can't save you. Your, your grandparents' faith won't get you through your suffering. Your friends' faith won't help you face your own adversities. Friends, have you met him? Have you met the living God yourself? Have you stood alone on the near side of the river and allowed God to ambush you? the way that he does for Jacob. And so that's the first point, a genuine encounter with God. The first mark is that you must meet him yourself. Christianity is a communal faith, but there's also something profoundly individualizing about it. You must meet him yourself. Have you done that? Secondly, a mark of genuine encounter with God is that you must also meet him in the weakness And so a big part of the story is by the time Jacob sends all of his possessions, all of his family, all of his belongings, all all of his community across the river, the point there is not just that Jacob is standing alone. The point is also that Jacob is standing there helpless. Uh, He's been stripped bare at this moment. So everything else that he'd been using as armor to protect himself from the realities of the world, everything he'd be using as armor to protect himself from his own self-reflection, all of that has been sent across the river, and here is Jacob completely helpless. Everything else has been sent. Everything he cheated and stole and exploited and schemed after, he merely now stands here weak with nothing but his own vulnerability to keep him company. And this is not just a symbolic moment. It's not just that Jacob sends all of his possessions over. This is the first time in Jacob's life that he genuinely doesn't know 
what he's supposed to do. So if you know the story, by this point, Jacob has heard God command him to go back to Canaan, go back to the land of his fathers. And here's Jacob, maybe for the first time, actually trying to obey God. So Jacob's trying to get his life together. So if you've been with us, we know the stories of his manipulations, of his conning, of his constant lying and deceiving. And for the first time, he hears from God, you need to go back to Canaan, back to the land of your fathers. And here's Jacob finally going back. But what he discovers is that the one person who stands between him and Canaan is his older brother Esau. And if you know the story, this is the brother that he conned. This is the brothers whose life he ruined. This is the brother who he exploited. And we know from the story that Esau has been plotting his revenge from the moment Jacob, his younger brother, stole his birthright and his blessing. And so Jacob hears that standing between him and the promised land has Esau, the brother whose life he's ruined. And Esau at this point is not just wandering through the desert. He's built for himself a strong nation, a strong army even. And so Jacob looks and he knows that the wrath of his brother is about to come on him. And so Jacob does what he does best. He gets ready for that. And so what does he do? He wisely splits his possessions in two. And he says, if Jacob comes after us, he's only going to chase after one or the other, so at least I'll be able to keep 50% of my wealth. And so he splits his possession in two. And then he says, I'm going to send envoy after envoy. So I'm just going to send waves of envoys, everyone bearing gifts, so that hopefully by the third or fourth or fifth envoy, my brother will know that I come in peace, that I come to make amends, that I come to make reconciliation, that I feel remorse for what I've done. And so Jacob sends these envoys, but they never make it back. And so you can imagine if you're Jacob saying, okay, I just sent all these gifts. I just sent my friends. I don't know what happened to them. Did Esau receive them as a gift or did Esau slaughter everyone that I sent to heaven? But he keeps on sending those envoys and he's done everything that he could possibly do. And now he stands at the moment where the night before Esau and his army is about to bear down upon him. And he's left with no recourse. This is the calm before the storm. And so he sends what's left of his possessions across the river to buy them time to be able to get away in the moment of a raid and attack. And here is Esau on the near side of the river, utterly alone. He's finally come to the end of himself. And in his desperation, he cries out to God. He comes to God in weakness. All of his strength. Now, here's the thing. Look, New Yorkers, New Yorkers, we're tough. New Yorkers, we hustle. New Yorkers, we know how to get things done. But it's usually the ones who are most competent, the most hustling, the toughest, who take the longest to be broken down before God, before you can meet him. And that's exactly what we're seeing with Jacob. He's finally at a moment where he says, God, I've got nothing left. I thought I had strength. I had, thought I had smarts. I thought I had work ethic. I thought I, I've got nothing left. There's nothing left for me to do. This is a sermon on a genuine encounter with God. And one of my favorite stories on a genuine encounter with God that illustrates this point where this point that we have to meet him in weakness is a story that Dr. King tells in one of his sermons. Uh, he's, I think he's preaching on Matthew chapter 28, so this is the Great Commission. And in it, he tells a story of a moment where he, in his weakness, 
meets Jesus. Now, a lot of people have questions about Dr. King's theology. If you read some of his early stuff, it's not clear that he would affirm a bodily resurrection, especially in his, when he's doing his doctorate at Boston University. My view, and I'm no King scholar, even though I've read a good bit, my view is that as he's continued the work of ministry and civil rights work, his view on God changes and, in my view, becomes more deeply biblically rooted. And here's a moment where Dr. King uh, describes this, and he says this. He says, I sat at that kitchen table. This is after there was a bombing at his home, and there's a lot of death threats. So he says, I sat at the kitchen table. And I got to the point where I couldn't take it anymore. I was weak, and I bowed down over that cup of coffee. I will never forget it. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause we represent is right. But, Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. And it seemed to me at that moment I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you even unto the end of the world. I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still to fight on, and he promised to never leave me, never to leave me alone. Never alone, no, never alone. That until you find yourself in a place of weakness, you found yourself at the end of your own natural resources, a genuine encounter with God becomes a very difficult kind of a thing. Weakness is a place of encounter. Do you know what that's like? Do you know what it's like to turn to God, not on your strengths, not based on your righteousness, not based on your goodness, not based on your performance? Do you know what it's like to come to God based entirely upon your weakness? And this is the moment where Jacob gets ambushed by God. And I love the Hebrew here. So if you look at, um, let's see, let's look down at verse 24. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched and he wrestled with the man. And the man said, let me go for his day. So what I love about it is this. Basically here at this moment, Jacob with his brother coming down, as far as he knows, to violently attack him. All of his possessions and belongings, family across the river, standing alone, utter vulnerability. And here in this moment of weakness, essentially what the text is saying us is that God at this moment, Jacob's Jacob. That he takes the supplanter and he supplants the supplanter. He wrestles with the one who wrestles. Here's Jacob upending the upender. Here's God out-scheming the schemer. That God now finally overtakes Jacob, beats Jacob at his own game, as it were, and he says, I will not let you go until you come back home to me. I love you far too much to let you out of my sight. And so it's at this moment that Jacob gets Jacobed by the grace of God, supplanted, uprooted, upended by God who refuses to let him go. And here's Jacob's great discovery in this moment as he finds himself wrestling with a man. Remember, Jacob's name means deceiver, supplanter, wrestler. Jacob has been wrestling with people all of his life. And here at this moment, 
Jacob makes what might be the most important discovery of his life, and it's this. For his entire life, Jacob thought, if I could just wrestle fatherly love from Isaac, then the wound in my soul will be healed. And it didn't heal his soul. If I could wrestle, if I could wrestle a sense of being better, of being more important than my older brother Esau, then I'll know somebody and it's going to heal the wound in my soul. And he does it. And he finds himself, if I could wrestle from Laban, prosperity and wealth, then, I, then I'll know I'm somebody who's important, someone to be reckoned with, somebody who matters. And he wrestles all that prosperity and he still feels a poverty of soul. It doesn't heal the wound of his soul. If I could wrestle from Leah or for Rachel the love of a spouse, then I'll know that I'm lovable, that I'm embraced. And he wrestles that out of his spouse, his wives, and he still finds his heart empty. And here, finally, the great insight, the great discovery that Jacob makes is that I've never been wrestling Isaac or Esau or Laban or Rachel or Leah. All along, I've been wrestling God that the only place that I will find a love that will heal the wounds of my soul is the God who has refused to let me go. That all along, there's been a greater wrestler wrestling behind and here in this moment, he finally becomes tangible. He becomes somebody that Jacob can finally get his hands on. And here's a question for us. Do you see yourself in this story yet? What have you been wrestling to try to extract a sense of your worth? Where have you been trying to extract the love of a father or a mother who is absent? Where you've been trying to extract a sense that you're somebody, to prove to somebody somewhere that you're significant. Where have you been trying to extract a sense of belovedness and embrace? What have you been wrestling thinking, if I could just get this, it will heal the searing wounds of my soul? The message of Jacob is until you wrestle with God, you cannot find a love great enough that will heal you. Behind all of your struggles, this story would tell you today, behind all that you are wrestling, there is a God who's been holding on to you, refusing to let you go. And he's saying, come wrestle with me. Wrestle with me in my love. But you won't be ready to do that until you come to him in weakness. For some of you, you're going to have to wrestle all of these other things in strength and finally come to a place where you say, I've wrestled it all and my soul is still not healed. Until you're ready to meet him in weakness, you can't have a genuine life-changing encounter with God. And that leads to our third and final point. So first... The first mark of a genuine encounter with God is that you must meet him yourself. Secondly, you must meet him in the weakness. Thirdly, you must meet him 
in your wounds. Did you notice the turning point of this story? Let me read to you verse 25 and 26 again. Uh, well, let me start at 24. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Uh, well, let me, I should start. Let me read it in NIV for us. Verse 24, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, uh, when Jacob, so Jacob was left alone, 24, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name, Jacob? And the man says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. And he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. Do you notice that there's a turning point in the story right there? I want you to imagine this with me. If you uh, were standing alone on the near side of the subway tracks, maybe not a river, but the near side of the subway tracks, and you were jumped by a stranger at night, and the stranger begins grappling with you on the near side of the subway track, what is your goal as you struggle against this stranger at night? What are you trying to do? You're trying with every ounce of power and energy to get as far away from possible as the, as from the assaulter as you can. You are spending all of your energy to push the struggler away. But did you notice at some point, Jacob goes from struggling to push the stranger away, and at some point, something happens to him where by the end of the struggle, what is Jacob doing? Jacob is the one clinging to the stranger, saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. What's happened there? What, is G- what has Jacob discovered in that moment? He goes from wrestling the stranger to push him away. The stranger, interestingly, it's, a, it's this mysterious passage in Scripture where it says that the stranger who by, by now we know... Could, is God could not overpower him. So what does he do? He touched Jacob's hip, and his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with a man. Essentially, this stranger, in wrestling with him, at some point realized he's not going to overpower, and so with just a touch of the hand, wrenches his hip out of his socket. Now, what happens to Jacob here at this point? He's utterly devastated, and now he's clinging to this man with all of his life. And he says, the wrestling is over, but now if I let you go, what's going to happen to me? He's clinging to him in weakness and in desperation. What has happened? What has changed for Jacob that makes him go from trying to push God away in his life to now clinging on to God saying, I can't let you go. I will never let you go. I can't release you unless I know your blessing goes with me. What has happened? Well, Jacob has received from God a wound of love. He's received from God, a God wounding him like a surgeon. That God, to heal Jacob, he must afflict him first. And this is the moment where Jacob, he enters into this wrestling match still relying on whatever strength he has left, trying to escape God's grasp. But here is the moment that by the end, all he can do is cling on to God saying, I can't let you go. I won't let you go. Because he realized that this man who is, if this man could merely touch his hip and completely wrench it out of its socket, he knows this was no mere man that I wrestled with. This is God himself. 
And I think it's the moment where he realizes, look, my father's approval, Isaac's approval, was not the blessing I was looking for. Outdoing my brother in life is not the blessing I was looking for. The wealth of Laban, the love of Rachel, these are not the blessings I was looking for. You, your blessing, your nearness, your presence. And from that moment on, Jacob would never be the same. And the swagger in Jacob's step has become the limp of someone who has met God in his wounds. And Jacob's name is no longer one who supplants and manipulates through his cunning. His name is now the one who struggles and prevails with God through his weakness and his wounds. Have you been wounded by the love of God? Has your encounter with God transformed your swagger and turned it into a limp of weakness? Uh, the uh, kind of uh, internationally known artist Makoto Fujimura talks about a particular kind of Japanese art that's called kintsugi. Kintsugi is Japanese for golden seams or golden repair. And if you know Japanese culture, tea ceremony is kind of a referred, revered cultural tradition, and they'd have the most uh, treasured kinds of tea bowls used in these ceremonies. And every once in a while when you're in these ceremonies, the bowls would drop and they would break and shatter. But what they would do is instead of discarding these bowls after they've been broken, they would hand them over into the hands of an artist. And the artist would take the pieces of this bowl and glue it all together, but where all the cracks and fissures and brokenness and seams were, that artists would use gold or other precious metals to heal this bowl so that the bowl, broken and redeemed, becomes far more valuable than a bowl that was never broken at all. A bowl where, as valuable as it is in and of itself, the scars of that bowl become the most interesting, the most beautiful, the most valuable thing that you can look upon. That in the right hands, our wounds are transformed into, an, into a source of a new kind of beauty. That in the hands of God, our brokenness, the ways that we feel shattered in the healing hands of God, he begins to transform us. And they become the most beautiful, the most powerful, the most compelling parts of who you and I are. Have you met the God who heals like this? Let me conclude with one story. There's a legend in the Talmud where a rabbi uh, meets the prophet Elijah. And the rabbi asks Elijah when the Messiah will come. And Elijah tells the rabbi, he says, well, why don't you go and ask the Messiah yourself? And the rabbi in this legend, in this vision, he says, well, how will I recognize the Elijah how will I, or the, the Messiah? How will I know him? And Elijah's answer is this. He says, the Messiah is sitting among the poor, covered with wounds, binding the wounds of others one at a time. See, the story of Jacob Wrestling with God points us to the one true wounded healer. It points us to the promise that there is a day coming where there will be another one who will wrestle with God in the darkest of night. 
There's another day coming of one who would leave all of his possessions behind, will come and enter into darkness and wrestle with God. And here in this story, God is wrestling with Jacob, but it's clear that God is holding everything back. He's not letting the full weight of his justice and glory and power fall upon Jacob. And he merely he wounds him with a gentle touch of the hip. But there was a day coming when there would be one who is greater than Jacob, who will plunge himself into darkness, who will wrestle with God, and in wrestling with God would feel the full weight of God's holiness and justice and glory fall upon him and crush him on the cross. And there will be a time coming where this wrestler like Jacob would say, please let this cup pass from me. Please don't let this happen to me. And yet not your will but mine. And by the end of the struggle, this same new and greater Jacob would be crying out saying, God, please don't leave me. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, would come and receive all the wounds that you and I have received, all the wounds that you and I deserve for our rebellion and our sin. He would take our wounds. He would wrestle with the full weight of the glory of God. He would be wounded in his hands and feet forever for all of eternity so that you and I might receive the touch of God And that touch wouldn't destroy us, but it would merely let us walk away with a limp of someone who's met the living God. Do you know Jesus? Have you seen him wrestle your sin? Have you seen him wrestle with you in your suffering? Have you seen him wrestle God to take the full weight of his judgment upon himself? Have you seen him do that? Have you seen him say, look at the blessing I've secured for you. It's for you. It's all for you. The love of a father, the embrace of spousal love, a status that no one could ever take away. It's yours. Friends, if we come to him, if we've met this Jesus face to face, if we've met him in our weakness, if we've seen his wounds for us, That's the love that will heal you. That's the love of genuine encounter. That's the love that might show a watching world that here is a God in the midst of all of our hypocrisy. Here is a God who will never leave you and forsake you. So let's come to him now. Let's come in prayer. Lord, we ask today that you would see the ways that we're wrestling with you right now whether in grief or in anger, uh, whether in doubts or in fear, all the ways that we're wrestling with you, Lord, I pray, Lord God, that you would show us your wounds. You would show us the hands that are now eternally scarred because of our sin. You'd show us what Jesus has done. Oh, God, that we might know that here is a God who has come to encounter me one-on-one, to change me forever. And so, Lord, even now as we come to your table, Lord God, we ask, O Lord, that we might come and see a body broken and blood poured out, a wounded healer at this table. 
Lord, that as we take this blood and take uh, this bread, Lord, you would heal us with an element that is far more precious even than gold, that we would show force, forth the blood and body of Jesus to the world. And so meet us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc. 